0: Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by a true gaming industry pioneer. Ed Smith is a gaming and tech industry veteran with more than four decades of industry experience. He's one of two African-American engineers to work in the gaming industry in the early 70s, and the only African-American engineer to work on a hybrid gaming and personal computer. What's going on, Ed?
1: Oh, it's great. Thanks for inviting me, Chris.
0: Sure. Thank you for joining me. So to set the stage, Ed, for those who are less familiar with you and you know, sort of where you come from, can you just talk a little bit about where you grew up and what the environment was like back when you were a young person?
1: I'd love to. I'd love to share that with your audience. I grew up in a little town called Brownsville which is in Brooklyn, New York, Uh, and I grew up uh, in that environment during the mid-60s to early 70s, and uh, if folks were around who have read about the turbulent times that was going on In New York, in Brownsville, in Brooklyn at that time, it was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had dilapidated housing, you had an environment where criminals were just running the streets, Mm. drug addicts were out there, prostitution was out there. It was pretty much a mess. And as Mm -hmm. a child growing up, you know, you had to be able to figure out a way to navigate yourself, you know, through some very some very difficult challenges.
0: And so with that sort of environment, right, there are, I'm sure, a number of different sort of outcomes that different folks around you had, right? And for you, you somehow found your way into the computer industry and technology. And so how did you actually, like, spark this interest in tech when, you know, clearly in your environment, there probably weren't natural on-ramps to tech?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, when I do talks to folks and and that question comes up, I always try to think through it again and again (laughs) to see if I can come up with an answer that's even better than the one I came up with the last time. Mm -hmm. But the real truth of the matter is this was something that was just evolutionary for me. I guess there are some things in certain people that pushes them in a certain direction, even when they don't want to go in that direction. It just kind of happens, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you get things put in front of you that says you know this is broken Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: the inclination is not to say well just throw it away Mm -hmm. but let me see if I can fix it that's a different mentality than you would think people would have during that time but I did have that mentality and I just wanted to be able to fix things when they were broken Mm
0: -hmm. and that was my start. And what were some of those things that you enjoyed tinkering with back then?
1: Oh yeah so it started out with toasters vacuum cleaners radios Mm -hmm. television sets you know in that during that time when you had to fix a tv or radio you know they had uh, vacuum tubes in them Mm -hmm. so you had to figure out which which tube was potentially bad Mm -hmm. and luckily you had the drugstore on the corner that had a tube tester and i would run across the street and test the tubes and see Mm -hmm. which one was bad and then go back and uh reinstall them. And that was the kind of thing that I did. So yeah, that was it.
0: So yeah, it sounded like you were very much sort of just naturally drawn to it. And then at some point in your early life, you know, you ended up at this company called Marbleite. So what is Marbleite? And what were you doing there?
1: Yeah, so Marbleite was probably the second company that I went to work for. Mm -hmm. But that was a company where I was given an opportunity to work in the Space of traffic control signals. So Mm -hmm. anything that anybody does when they drive and you see the street lights and the the, the walk, don't walk signs and all of the sensors that are out there, a lot of that stuff was going on even back in the 70s when it came to traffic control. Clearly, when I took the job, I didn't realize how extensive it was, but Mm -hmm. it was pretty cool. And it was really a good starting point for me, just given the background that I had in learning technical electronics to go to a firm that was really moving forward as far as technology was concerned in the traffic control signal space.
0: So was this an area you were actually interested in or did you just like wanna get your hands dirty and start getting some experience?
1: Yeah, no, so I was was 19 years old (laughs) when I took that job Mm -hmm. and I was still going to college. So I just wanted a job to be honest with you. And I wanted a job if I could, that was in the area of technology. Mm Frankly, I would have taken any job, but since (laughs) I had the background, I was able to get the job, at least something that had to do with some area of technology. Mm -hmm. And frankly, when I took the job, I didn't even realize, as I mentioned, how fast they were moving as far as technology was concerned and traffic control. And that was one of the launching points for me to start to learn microprocessor technology. So Mm -hmm. we went from mechanical units to solid state units. And finally, to processor based traffic control units.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, after working at MarbleLite for a little while, you moved on to this company called APF. And so, what is APF and what were they doing before you joined them?
1: Okay, so APF Electronics, the name stands for Al and Phil Friedman. Mm-hmm. Those were the principals of the company. And basically, they were an importer of electronic products from places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, etc. cetera. So that was their business and they were, to be blunt, you know, what we called back then was a knockoff electronics company, <laughs> right? So some company would come out with a product and then we would come out with a product that was pretty close to the same <laughs> thing <laughs> at a better price. Mm-hmm. And we would sell those quote knockoffs to many of the different retailers across the country with sears by the way being the biggest retailer that Mm -hmm. would buy the apf knockoff calculators is where we started you know we had calculators and adding machines that was Mm -hmm. the core of the business back then and then as the industry started to move into this new thing which is video gaming apf folks thought that they could make a pretty good penny if they put out a video game the first game they put out was based on the pong chip Mm -hmm. So they had a game called TV fun. This is prior to my joining APF. This is what their business was, right? Mm -hmm. So once they came out with the TV fun game and they were quote in the business of video (laughs) gaming now, right? I mean, that was the start. They started looking at where the market was going Mm -hmm. and clearly the market was moving to this new microprocessor technology, eight bit microprocessor technology just coming out into the marketplace, a lot of people weren't doing a lot with it yet. Magnavox started doing some stuff early on and APF saw that and they realized they had to get into that part of the business color mm-hmm. video gaming. And that's when they did their search, right? They had to go out now if they were going to do that piece of the business. It was easy to put a ROM you know, into a console and plug it into a TV and sell it single-year game, which was punk. but once you're starting to do cartridge-based color video games, you're in a different environment. You're in a different space, mm-hmm. sphere, and they knew they needed new people to address that particular piece of the business if they wanted to design that type of a video game, and that's when they hired myself. I was able to be involved with a, an employment firm back then. Mm-hmm. They got me the job at Marbleite, and as i started to get better at the things that i did at marbleite and wanted to move on i went back to them to see if there was something else that they could get for me and that's how they got me into apf so i got that job along with another hardware engineer a programmer mm-hmm. two programmers in fact and the folks who were still there from the calculator and early video game business so there was about seven or eight of us including a marketing person that was the team that came together to start working on this new color video game that we called the MP 1000. Mm
0: -hmm. And then just taking a step back. So for folks, my age, you know, Sears was never looked at as being like a force in electronics (laughs) by by any means, maybe like appliances. Right. But just, you know, again, further setting the stage. So was Sears like a leading wholesaler, if you will, of like electronics and, and computers back uh, during this time?
1: Yeah. So Sears then is Walmart today. Okay. So that was their business. They sold mm-hmm. clothes. They sold appliances. A lot of people bought Sears washers and dryers and refrigerators, mm-hmm. right? They had an appliance department and they also had an electronics department where they sell, you know, the radios, the Walkmans, all of those different electronic stuff. And they also sold, the video games Mm -hmm. so that was you know they sold calculators and adding machines too (laughs) they sold all of the stuff that uh that APF made so they were a a the primary supplier of APF product
0: okay and then you mentioned the uh MP1000 which is you know one of the machines that you got to work quite a bit on uh, during your career and so what is the MP1000?
1: So the MP-1000 is the APF iteration of a 8-bit color video game with joysticks and with a slot for multiple game cartridges to Mm -hmm. be played. So that is what the MP-1000 was designed to do. My role primarily was to design the cartridge slot so that we can have the ability to just plug and unplug cartridges. It wasn't an easy thing to do back (laughs) then, as well as lay it out the entire circuitry of the internal board for the machine, built all of the prototypes, did all of the testing, blew a lot of stuff up, (laughs) and then came up with something that was a working prototype that we would take and use to design our final product.
0: And how did the MP1000 do in the market?
1: Okay, so during that time, we competed primarily with, as I mentioned, Magnavox early mm-hmm. on, the Odyssey, and then Atari came out. Mm-hmm. And Atari really took the market by storm. The, the video game market was owned mm-hmm. by Atari. There's, there's no question about it. The, the thing that APF was able to do was to get the MP1000, again, into Sears, and Sears had a loyal customer base at mm-hmm. that time. So if you had a customer that was going into Sears to buy an appliance or something else, they're probably going to meander over to the electronics department anyway. And they might see this game that was a little bit cheaper than the Atari and they might Mm -hmm. buy it. But as far as market share was concerned, I would say that APF was one fifth of the total Mm -hmm. video game market at that time. And by the way, it was a big market.
0: It's funny too because you know Atari today, for most folks my age, also isn't like super relevant, but obviously it was very, very dominant for many years. Yep. And how much was the MP1000? Do you remember?
1: The MP1000 sold for one ninety nine, if I recall. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah.
0: Not that bad.
1: That, well, two hundred bucks back then. <laughs> I guess that <laughs> not a lot of people could afford. A video game for two hundred dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Television sets were going for two hundred dollars back then. And
0: what year was this? This was 80, 1978. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, okay. And then, what were some of the challenges that the MP one thousand faced in the market?
1: Well, the primary challenge was competing against Atari. Mm-hmm. You know, the the key to these video games at that time. Was not necessarily the console, which mm-hmm. is what I was partly responsible for designing. It was the actual games that you were able to play, mm-hmm. right? So we had some games that were okay, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, we had games like boxing, tic-tac-toe, bowling, mm-hmm. baseball, and we had a, diver- a version of the space invaders game that was popular back then. We called ours space destroyers. But Atari had some better games and people bought the atari console because Mm -hmm. they wanted to play the atari games and that was the real thing that affected apf is we just didn't have games that were as good as atari
0: Mm -hmm. and then were you like passionate about gaming back then
1: I lived in arcades back mm-hmm. then. And when I say arcades, you know, back, back then, I don't think there were a lot of arcades per se, but there mm-hmm. were pizza stores that yeah. had it. And any place where there was somebody that had a little restaurant, they had a little game sitting over there in the corner. Mm-hmm. So I would play Pong. Mm-hmm. I would play Pac-Man. I would play Donkey Kong, Frogger, Space Invaders. Mm-hmm. I would play these games that were in these restaurants. So yes, I was always into gaming, but I was always into tech. Yeah, and Gaming to me was just tech, mm-hmm. right? I mean, back then there was not a lot of tech you could get your hands on. So yeah. gaming was just one of the things you could actually do if unless you wanted to get involved in things like audio, which was also good tech back mm-hmm. then, you know? So that's the kind of stuff that I did, yeah.
0: And then are there any games you play today or even over the last, you know, several years or in more re- recent years that you were into?
1: I don't play... A lot of action video games mm-hmm. any longer. I think the last thing that I—I I don't know if I would call it playing a video <laughs> game, but I was doing a lot of flight simulator stuff. Oh, okay. I think that counts
0: yeah. actually. There are a lot of gamers here into flight simulator. Yes, yes. So I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm a
1: big flight sim. I'm a flight sim guy. So mm-hmm. I've done quite a bit of that in my time. I try to stay away from the shoot 'em up games. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that for a lot of different reasons. But some of the strategy games, I still do like to play. I play chess all the time. Mm -hmm. So computer chess, you know, if you can't beat a computer at the 20th level, (laughs) don't play chess. That's all I can
0: tell you. It's funny. Yeah, chess has actually had quite a resurgence recently because there's a lot of like Twitch streamers that are streaming chess. Um, So it's become, you know, increasingly popular recently. Okay, so after the MP1000, talk about the successor that you worked on.
1: So the successor to the MP-1000 was actually the add-on to the video game itself, mm-hmm. which was a console that we were able to adapt to the MP-1000 that we then dubbed the Imagination Machine. Mm-hmm. Now, a little Great bit name, of a history. The Great. Oh yeah. Thank you. Oh, well, I didn't come <laughs> up with it. I can tell you that. It was <laughs> somebody else. But the, the idea behind the the Imagination Machine was, first and foremost. Our biggest competitor, who was Atari at the time, along with I think it was also Mattel, mm-hmm. announced that they would design an add on console, computer console mm-hmm. to their video games and offer that into the marketplace. So APF came out with the MP1000 1000 in 1978. We came out with that console six months later. Mm-hmm. We flew, we were, we were working 12, 13 hours a day. I mean, mm-hmm. we worked, there was, I, I un, the way folks talk about how they work today versus <laughs> back then, they have no idea. I mean, we did that stuff, you yeah. know, and we, we came out with that console in record time. And one of the biggest mm-hmm. things that I was proud to do was to do the adaptation between the video game and the console, which again mm-hmm. was not an easy thing to do. You know, you have to remember that when you're pairing two devices like that together, and you're putting it in front of a family that's going to use it. And the power is on. The last yeah. thing you want them to do is pull that connector out mm-hmm. and everything blows up. Right? <laughs> so you had to make sure there was some safeguards. In yeah. there. And that's really what I had to make sure I, I focused on when we did that that adaptation to the, uh, to the console.
0: Mm-hmm. By the way, Mattel making a hardware um, gaming device today, like it just seems completely out of the realm of of reality. So it's really funny that they're interested in that back then.
1: They they didn't have a great game back then either, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, if you look at that, if that, at the history of that, of that business, there were probably a good two dozen companies making video games Mm -hmm. then. None of those companies are in business anymore. Yeah. Not, any, not even Atari. None of them mm-hmm. are around anymore. The only ones that are now, now out there are the ones who came in after right. the 8-bit video game crash. Mm-hmm. And are there any
0: that like, folks would be familiar with, or are they all kind of just like, lost in, in history?
1: Well, the games back then, the companies were, in addition to Mattel, you had Coleco, of course, Atari. Boy, I can't even think of anybody else. It's been so long. I mean, I know there were a bunch of them, but yeah, Odyssey, I think was Mattel. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Magnavox was the other one. That's right. The Odyssey. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a few.
0: Got it. Okay. And you told a story in your book. By the way, the book is called Imagine That, and it's a fantastic read. So everyone who's listening should definitely take their time and read this book. But one of the stories that you told in the book is about, you know, how you used to borrow some of these extra imagination machines and give them out to some folks in your neighborhood. (laughs) Thanks for that word. Right. And, you know, just putting that into context, right? These are folks who, again, probably would never have access to this type of technology and, you know, could potentially be very impactful and just show them like you know, some of the things in the world that are out there that they never could have seen. And so I was just yeah. curious, do you know anyone who you actually gave one of these machines to, like whether it actually inspired them to pursue either tech or gaming or just sort of what the impact was of this? Yeah,
1: I, I, I wish I could tell you a, a, a better story than the one I'm going to, <laughs> but uh, the, the real history behind what I did back then, which I thought was needed. I mean, you know, when you, when you are working, at a company like APF back then, and you've come out with this, this great product. I mean, this was something that you know households in places where I grew up at, they would never, like mm-hmm. I said, pay two hundred bucks for something like this. It's right. just not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So they would never be introduced to any of this type of technology, which is always the problem when you are talking about an environment like right. that. They just don't have the opportunity to see what others see. Mm-hmm. So that was my thought process when I said, well, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, with uh, 15 pens in my pocket, working on a bench, you know, I've got mirrors and scopes and all of this stuff around me. And I'm like, boy, there's a room full of MP1000s sitting over there, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not being used because they were returned for just small reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, things that I could pop open and take care of in a heartbeat. Right. So I would actually take them and fix them up Mm -hmm. and start taking them into the neighborhood Two families who I knew and some families who I didn't know, but they had little kids. And that's Mm -hmm. why I just wanted to bring them into those families. And one of the folks that I did bring a unit to, their names were Shepard. He was probably 13 when I brought that unit to him. And he didn't know a lot about electronics at all, but he Mm -hmm. loved the game, right? Right. And just because he loved the game, he wanted to know how it worked. So Mm -hmm. I sat down with him and we talked about it. We spent a lot of time just talking about what a microprocessor is, how it works, how it connects up to other things so that you can have visualization of what you've done. Mm -hmm. This kid freaked out. (laughs) <laughs> right. He had, he was just like, nobody ever. We don't like, his answer was we don't learn those in school. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. I said, I understand. And I felt so bad for him. And I mm-hmm. told his mom, I said, you should probably get him into a, a magnet school if you can, because he mm-hmm. seems like he's a smart kid. He did, but I honestly don't know what happened to him after that. Mm-hmm. So that was the only one where I saw that, that introduction mm-hmm. to that space helped someone. But if it helped one person, I was yeah. happy with that. And I'm sure a lot of folks who got the video game, they had a. I know they had a wonderful time because we would go to each other's house and play the games. Yeah. Right? So I know they loved the games, and they probably got into the later stages of video gaming
0: because of what they mm-hmm. learned back then. Yeah, and I think it's just uh, such a great thing that you were able to do uh, to impact these folks' lives. But okay, going back to to your career. So at some point while you were at APF, you transitioned from you know, a pure engineering role to more of like sort of a technical sales role. Yeah. What motivated this decision?
1: Yeah, so this is when the business itself at APF was starting to take a downturn. The sales were slowing. We had just come out with the imagination machine, too. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to push ourselves into, again, this new space, Right. You know, we started with calculators, added machines, and then Pong video games and then Mm -hmm. color video games. And now personal computing becomes big and we wanted to get ourselves into that space. So we put our resources into the design of that imagination machine, too. And the company just basically ran out of money. Mm -hmm. They asked the bank for more. The bank. This is a true story. Did not feel that video gaming and personal computing was the future of any business. (laughs) And they would not extend money to APF. Yeah, it's crazy. And and the the company just went out of business because of that. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, and actually one question I meant to ask. So you mentioned that these machines had this thing called a tape drive. What is a a tape drive? (laughs) (laughs) And why was that sort of like, you know, obsolete and not the right right decision?
1: Yeah, wow, this thing called a tape drive. (laughs) Yeah, you know. So for the small piece of education here as to mm-hmm. what we did and what that is, in the 70s, the media that was used for all types of digital and audio storage was mag tape or mm-hmm. or some type of tape, cassette tape, mag mm-hmm. tape, you call it. That's how information was stored. There mm-hmm. was no such thing up until that point of things called disk drives or Mm -hmm. CD drives or flash drives and things we have today. So every storage, anyone that wanted to do anything as far as storage had to use a tape drive. Mm -hmm. The, The challenge that APF faced is we as engineering folks, we already knew that as we were designing the imagination machine that floppy disk drives were just being introduced into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. The price point was still relatively high, but Mm -hmm. they were just starting to come out into the marketplace. And one of the things I always would fight with the marketing folks about was how our competitor, if you want to call them our competitor Mm -hmm. in the (laughs) computer space, being Apple who Mm -hmm. owned that space, right? They had a computer that you can just pop the top off of, plug a card into it and expand it and away you go. Mm -hmm. And they had no tape drive. So if you wanted to plug a hard disk drive into it or another tape drive into it or anything else new that comes out, you can just do that very easily with an Apple. The marketing folks within APF, their thought process was, we are not trying to compete against Apple, Mm. who is a hobbyist mostly company. (laughs) And most of the stuff they do is for hobbyists. they APF said, we're going to come up with a machine that's built for home use, for families, Mm -hmm. for education, for this and that, and they don't need a hard disk. Mm -hmm. So they wanted us to add the tape drive, which we did. The families at that time were smart enough to know the tape drives were already obsolete and they wouldn't buy the imagination machine Mm -hmm. because of it. And that's one of the things that killed the product. Got it.
0: So... You know, as you moved up in this technical sales job, right, and you started getting sort of more and more successful, you know, you talk about this increasing dichotomy of during your day job, you're sort of living this type of life, you're around a certain type of people, but at night, you'd go back to sort of, you know, the same environment that you sort of came from, right? And so this dichotomy obviously got sort of wider and wider. Um. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious, how did this impact you? Like, what was going through your head at this time, right? Like, during the day, you're at you know, sort of the edge of all this stuff going on in technology, you know. But uh, in sort of this other side of your life, right, you're in you know, just a completely different environment.
1: Yeah, well, a- absolutely, Chris. It was it was it was a a challenging thing to do to mm-hmm. to live still even though i was working at apf and i was making okay money mm-hmm. i mean i wasn't making a ton of money yeah but i was doing well enough where you know i could at least be able to afford to pay a decent rent mm-hmm. in a place that didn't have too many bugs you know mm-hmm. i mean that for us was successful mm-hmm. right But then you had to leave that environment, which was still in Brooklyn. It wasn't Brownsville, but it was Mm -hmm. Brooklyn. And Brooklyn itself was pretty bad back then. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, get on the train, get on the subway and go to work. And you get into an environment where, you know, around people and they're just talking about how they have their, uh, you know, their vacations Mm -hmm. and their their home in Tom's River, New Jersey and all of these things. And I'm thinking, that's not how I (laughs) live. Right. This was like, I couldn't even get into the conversations they Mm -hmm. were having. And that used to really get to me mm-hmm. right? because I'm sitting there doing exactly the same stuff they're doing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they're talking about their life, which is totally different from the life that I was living. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I would go home, get mugged sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. they take my paycheck. I mean, I was living that kind of a life. Yeah. They were on, you know, they were on their way onto the expressway <laughs> driving home. It was mm-hmm. a different environment.
0: So I'm actually just curious, just based on that, that point you made, so... What did you actually do as far as like conversations with some of these folks, right? Like they're talking about this stuff that at the time you couldn't relate to at all. So how did you actually like connect with some of the folks that you were working with if you, if you did at all?
1: Yeah. And that's a great question. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I, I actually had taken it upon myself early on and I know I was at at, um, no, I think I was at Marble Egg when Mm -hmm. I, when I started to take this, this, this demeanor about myself. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone would tell me what they do, and it seemed like it was so much better than Mm -hmm. what I did, Mm -hmm. I would stand up or sit down and just say, well, let me tell you where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them my environment. I would share with them how I live Mm -hmm. and let them know that one day I hope to be where you are, but Mm -hmm. I'm not there today. And I would tell them that. And I didn't want them to feel, you know, sympathetic for me or anything, yeah. but I just wanted them to know the reality because I wanted them to understand that your reality is not my reality. Mm-hmm. And, and how, um, how did they that respond? That always to... the thing. Some were feeling sympathetic mm-hmm. and I told them not to because that's just the way it is. Yeah. Some didn't understand the struggles that mm-hmm. folks like us actually had during that time because they just lived a completely different life, right? Mm-hmm. So they never saw it. They read about in the papers. So they think that's a singular incident. Yeah. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. It's mm-hmm. the way they would talk about it. But others understood. And most of the ones who truly understood were the true New Yorkers, the one who may not have lived in the environment that I lived in, but they were close enough, maybe in the other sections of Brooklyn that were better mm-hmm. or some parts of Manhattan that were nice. So they lived in New York. They were New Yorkers. And they understood that everybody within the city of New York has their different areas that they are connected to and it's always not the same connection so Mm -hmm. they got it but some folks the suburbans didn't get it yeah
0: and then you know people talk a lot today about like this imposter syndrome right or like this feeling of not belonging but you know having talked to you and like having read your book it seems like you've always sort of exuded this sort of confidence and just like belief in yourself. So I'm just curious, did you ever have any sort of imposter syndrome at all? Or did you always just, you know, know you were, you belonged there. And you know, you're going to just keep pushing forward.
1: You know, I was lucky, I guess, to start out early enough, Mm -hmm. where I could see that other people, even if they were not the same skin tone as me, Mm -hmm. Had a presence about themselves, you know, a a demeanor, a way by which they would express themselves. Mm -hmm. I think I learned that very, very early in life, uh, and I think my high school teacher, in fact, pushed that upon his students, is to tell us when you know you know, Mm -hmm. let them know, Mm -hmm. and don't hold back. And that was always the thing that I would always remember because if you don't push your thoughts your ideas and just succumb to what people are saying, you're not going to have the same level of success that you want to have because people need to hear you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's important. And I think that's exactly what I did. So I would stick my chest out. I would walk tall. I would answer the questions that I knew. And if I didn't know the answer, I would say, hey, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ask somebody else or whatever. Sure. But I would never back away from you know having that conversation.
0: And then the other side of this, right? So as you were becoming more successful and you were still going back to, you know, the same sort of environments, the folks around you in those environments, is probably becoming more and more difficult to relate to them. So what was that like? And I'm just curious, did you ever feel guilty at all or just bad for the folks, you know, who were not able to sort of pull themselves up in the way that you were?
1: Yeah, I had a lot of friends who are not with me any longer. Mm-hmm. A lot of friends who I saw, you know, just going down that, that, that rat hill. Mm-hmm. They they just could never pull themselves out once they started going into that direction. So, yeah, I would come back. My mom was still living in the projects while I was working there. Mm-hmm. And I would come back and see mom. I would see the same guys I grew up with. Now I'm 25, 26 years old. They're still in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. they're still there or still living with their mom. And I'm, I'm going, you know, yeah, I was, I was, I felt really bad. And I actually started to question a lot back then, mm-hmm. you know, I would read a lot because there were a lot of good African-American role models that I could pick up things from back mm-hmm. then, you know, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Stokey Carmichael, mm-hmm. people like that, you know, as I see the struggle that we faced back then. I could see that it was so real.
0: Mm -hmm. It was
1: just like, if I'm here doing this and there's another eight or nine guys doing that other stuff, so I'm like one-tenth of the success rate of my environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was easy math to figure out, right? And that was depressing. Mm -hmm. And there there was not a lot you could do to change the mentality of folks once they started going into... A certain direction. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to bring them back out. It really is. I think the good news, though, is that as time went on, some pulled themselves up. Unfortunately, some didn't. But Mm -hmm. I still am connected with folks who have had good careers in different areas of their lives. Mm -hmm. So it's not all bad. I can tell you that. There's a lot of good as well.
0: Yeah, so one of these folks actually who's become quite successful, this, this guy, World Be Free. <laughs> For those who might not know who this person is, can you, you know, explain who is World Be Free and what is your relationship to him?
1: So I, I, will, I will start by telling you what, the, what our relationship is. Mm-hmm. Our relationship, to be honest with you, if he were to walk into the room today and you would ask him about how our relationship is, it's very simple, he's mm-hmm. family. Mm -hmm. World Free knows every single person in my family. We've grown (laughs) up together since we were six years old. I saw World Free grow up to be this great high school ball player. Mm -hmm. Even though I was in the gym with him, I'm playing ball (laughs) with this guy. I'm a short guy. You know, Mm -hmm. I I was lanky. I had nothing. This guy Mm -hmm. had a body, he had a build, and he had a great game. So by the time he was in high school, he was a star in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. along with some other guys who played basketball at that time as well. So just because World became, and by the way, he was around, I'm going to say 16, 17 years old, in the park playing ball. This is how close we were as family. My Mm -hmm. brother Herb, who passed away, was the announcer at one of the games. Mm. World Free gets the ball on a fast break. There's a guy that's like 6'8 in front of him. (laughs) This is a true story. (laughs) He jumps up. He takes a 360-degree turn and dunks on him. (laughs) My brother goes, he just went around the world on him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That name stuck. And that's Uh. how we got the name World Be Free. True story. But that's how close we were as a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's been to family events. Mm -hmm. We've gone to church together. We've, We've done... Other things together. I've got his number on speed dial anytime mm-hmm. I want to call him. I don't say this because he was this famous basketball player, by the way, because to me, I couldn't care less. Oh, I could care because he was <laughs> successful. I, yeah. I shouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. But he was more of a family. He was more of a brother to me mm-hmm. than a superstar ball player. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's the way it is today. We get together, we can have a chat, we can have a beer, we can talk about the old times, and we go home. And that's the greatest thing about that type of relationship—that's now lasted for over sixty years. By the way, he was one of the first guys to tell me when we were playing ball together, and I would get knocked down, and he would <laughs> pull me up, and he would say, "You, you're not good for this. Figure something else out, because this is not going to
0: work for you." Again, it's just like a great story to show that there are some folks who, you know, who you were around, who have gone on to have great careers of their own. Yeah. So, you know, at some point, you decided, "Hey, it's time for me to." To move out of this place. And in the book, you know, you mentioned a specific incident, you know, related to when you were walking home one day. So could you just sort of quickly tell that story? And then why you actually decided, hey, now's the time I have to get out of here.
1: I think the incident you're referring to is uh, the time when I was coming home, and I did get mugged. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was uh, getting off of the subway, walking back to our apartment, which was in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. If any mm-hmm. Brooklyn folks are out there, they would, <laughs> they would know where that is. And I could see that, I could feel that there was somebody behind me. Mm. But there was always people walking around, so I pretty much didn't, I wasn't as aware as I should have been. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And before I did become aware, I was, you know, pulled over. <laughs> uh, a gun in my back. Yeah. At least I think it was a gun. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they took what I had, and I think that was a payday. So that, that hurt pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And, and that hurt bad enough where it was the second time that our family had gotten robbed. So mm-hmm. it was starting to become like this, this thing that I didn't want to see happen, especially now that I have two daughters that I'm looking at. Right. And I really started to feel that, and if you read about the environment of Brooklyn during that time, I can't see how anyone could live through it, yeah. to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And that was the decision-making time when I went back home, and I told told my wife, you know, it's time for us to think about getting out of Brooklyn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't really say getting out of New York because I did like, you know, if I could get, if I could have gotten a high rise in Manhattan with my kids, I would have done it. But yeah, that was too expensive. So, mm-hmm. was really trying to get out of that Brooklyn environment. That was
0: mm-hmm. it. Got it. Um, okay, and then at some point in your career you know, you just, you ended up leaving the gaming industry. So why did you leave the gaming industry? And at the time, did you ever think it would get, you know, I think it was probably impossible to imagine it getting as big as it is today, but did you imagine that the gaming industry was going to be this massive industry? And then did, did you ever regret actually leaving gaming? Yeah.
1: All right. So the reason I left, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's do that one. Right. Yeah. The The reason I left had nothing to do with my desire to leave mm-hmm. the gaming industry, mm-hmm. right? If folks are aware of what happened back then, I think it started in 1982. It started a little bit earlier for APF because mm-hmm. we were already losing revenue on our game. But by 1982, 1983, no one was buying video games. There mm-hmm. was this thing called the, the big video game crash mm-hmm. of that time. So there was a, avoid in the video game space for two or three years now here's a guy by the way right so i'm working at apf a mm-hmm. company that's headquartered in manhattan in new york right there was no other video game company headquartered in new york mm-hmm. no and i mean new york state mm. right There was no one in the Northeast. If you Mm -hmm. wanted to go work for a video game company back then, this is prior to the crash. Mm -hmm. You had to go to either California or Texas, which was where two of the bigger gaming companies were, or at least a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And by the way, even for having a true technology career at that time, the best place would have been to go to California, Mm -hmm. right? But here I am in New York City. The gaming industry is a bust. I got to take care of my family, Mm -hmm. right? So what do I do? I go find the next thing in tech that I could get my arms around. Mm -hmm. And since I had done the work on the imagination machine, again, the video game is nothing more than a computer that's Mm -hmm. designed for a game. And then we take that and actually make it a computer. You get a lot of education about what computing is. So since I had that knowledge, I was able to get work at Apple computer, mm-hmm. right? Which was not a bad thing. You know, I was an Apple fan. So I was, I was like, okay, video games, buy Apple, here I am. And they actually moved me from Brooklyn to Albany, New York to manage retailers. And by the way, the, the only other reason I was able to get that position is because during the last year at APF, there was not a lot of engineering work to do. It was more about marketing the imagination machine. And we had salespeople who just didn't understand that level of technology. And I actually had it end up going on the road with these guys to help them sell the imagination machine. So I started doing all of the presentations about the technology, which got me into the area of being able to help others sell solutions. And that's what I did at Apple, helping retailers, retailers sell the Apple computers.
0: Okay. So, you know, my Podcast obviously is focused on gaming, but you did a lot after gaming. So I just wanted to, you know, give you a brief bit of time to just, you know, sort of talk about what are some of the other things that you did in tech, right? Like you worked in tech for decades, literally, you know, four plus decades. And you know, you've crossed paths with people like, you know, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. You've done business mm-hmm. with all of these great tech companies. So if you want to just highlight, you know, whether it's a couple stories or just a couple highlights of your career. You know, I just wanted to, to open the floor for you.
1: Okay, that's great. And thanks for letting me just share a little bit of yeah. that. By the way, just quickly on the video game side itself, the the latest games, and I didn't get to that, mm-hmm. that are out today are awesome. I never thought there would be video game consoles any longer mm-hmm. because I truly believe that a PC could be just as good as a video game as a console but yeah. Microsoft and Sony and all of these guys they want to make their money I get it but mm-hmm. you don't need a console <laughs> anyway so I'll, I I'll agree with you there. by the
0: way I agree with yeah. you
1: but so my career since APF I, I mentioned mm-hmm. Apple so Apple was a great situation to be in problem that Apple had is they actually started to lose money themselves. Mm-hmm. They were almost bankrupt at one time. They came out with the Apple 3 computer that was a bus. they came out with a Lisa computer that was a bust after that. Mm-hmm. and then they finally came out with the Mac and when the new Mac, the first Mac came out, it was so slow and so cumbersome you could hardly even use it for any level of productivity. So it took Apple, years to come to the point where they are today. Mm -hmm. So Apple, during that downturn, I was laid off. So Mm -hmm. I had to go get other work. So now here I am, this guy who started out with this company called APF, video games, and then personal computers, and then Apple with computing. And by the way, since I was at all of these Apple retailers, right, I started to realize that this world is not just about Apple, Mm -hmm. right? IBM comes out with their personal computer. You have the peripherals that came around that Mm -hmm. also complemented the computer systems. So I started going to these dealers when I was with Apple, and I'm learning all of this other new stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the dealers that I worked with, even when I was with APF, was a company called the Computer Factory. Mm -hmm. And they were a computer retailer, but they sold everything. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was a kid in a candy shop, because (laughs) I had the opportunity to learn everything, optical scanning, networking, all the different printing technologies, all of the different modem and communications technologies that was going on. I learned all of this stuff. I Mm -hmm. could write codes that would quickly compile all of this stuff so that users don't have to figure it out. And Mm -hmm. back then it wasn't that easy. (laughs) So I did that with the factory for a while. In fact, so I was there and I'm going to try to make this as fast as I can. Uh, I love this story because I'm Mm -hmm. at the factory and, and I'm doing all of this stuff and You know, some clients wanted to get into the networking space. And I learned a lot about networks at the time, right? So I knew how Mm -hmm. to do the connectivity. I mean, when you're an engineer, you did all of this other stuff. These guys were like, how do you know this? And I'm like, no, no, I can't explain it. (laughs) it." But anyway, I would do this stuff and I would go to these forums and Mm -hmm. they would have these forums about, you know, how do you do networking here if you're a business? These are business forums. These Mm -hmm. are, you know, CIOs that come to these things and they want to learn about networking. It's a big thing. It's a new thing. And they Mm want to learn about it. And I knew a lot about it. So I would do these presentations and one day somebody comes up to me and he says, I want you to work for my company. I'm like, who are you? And this guy was like, I'm with Novell and Novell was one of the biggest networking companies mm-hmm. at the time. And I was actually talking about their product and their competitors' product. This guy loved what I was saying because mm-hmm. I guess I didn't piss him off. I guess but Anyway, <laughs> he, uh, he, he told me I needed to go and you know, apply for this position at Novell, which mm-hmm. I did. And I became this technical specialist, which was my first gig at Novell. Mm-hmm. And that technical specialist role evolved over just a few years into a strategic alliance role because the the tech all of this stuff was so new, networking was so new at the time. You needed folks who could work with other third-party companies to make sure that everything was integrated and operated mm-hmm. efficiently. And a lot of the companies that I would be working with as an alliance partner was Microsoft, I would meet with Bill Gates, IBM, I would meet with their executives, right? I'm meeting with all of these big companies now, Mm -hmm. because now my role is general manager of strategic alliances, Mm -hmm. which means I have legal uh, around me, marketing around me, uh, all of these different resources around me that I can bring together to make sure that any solution Novell does with any of these other third-party companies is going to do exactly what it's supposed to. That was a 13-year career, Mm -hmm. great career at Novell. Unfortunately, networking died. Everything Mm -hmm. is now built into your PC. So that business went away. Mm -hmm. And then I spent another 10 years at a company called Infosys because at that point, I was so smart, (laughs) I got into the consulting side of the business. And that's Mm -hmm. what Infosys did. So I did the consulting piece for 10 years and uh, worked for another software company called Kronos after that, just because I was on the downturn of my career and Mm -hmm. that was just an end game play but it was a great company to work for I love Kronos I probably spent a good part of 28 years working for just four companies
0: got it yeah no I mean you know like I said you had a fantastic long career as a pioneer both in gaming and tech but you know I wanted to ask you what do you do today like what do you do whether it's work-wise or just like personal to spend your time today so
1: I still do a lot of information sharing with research firms, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're in this space of technology and you've got all of these different companies that are out there and they're always looking to move into different areas of technology and there's so much stuff out there these Mm -hmm. days, it's hard to really figure out who's telling you the truth, right? Mm -hmm. So they just want to talk to people who have the background who kind of know where things are as far as technology who the key players are and why, and I share a lot of that stuff with them. So I work with about three or four different research firms, and Mm -hmm. I do a lot of that discussion with their clients. I also do talks like this. I do quite Mm -hmm. a bit of that. I was going to a lot of universities and high schools, but since the pandemic, it's been spotty. It's been mostly uh, video, but that's fine. So I still do a lot of presentations to those schools, and then I try to play as much golf as I can.
0: (laughs) So just on you know on the talks and the knowledge sharing you know why is this so important to you and when you were growing up were there similar folks that you sort of looked up to who you know inspired you or imparted knowledge on you
1: there there were people i looked up to as 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 people not necessarily because of what they knew but because of who they were yeah how they how they did things that they did You know, they were some level of professional, didn't have to be my world, but Mm -hmm. they were people who I could see where, you know, you don't have to do this other thing that this, you know, there are these opportunities that you can grasp onto, but in the area of technology, which is the unfortunate thing, you know, when you look at it, the back when I was doing this, I think there was probably 1% of African-Americans who were in technology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's less than 1%, but they just stopped at one, yeah. right? Because they didn't want to do a point this percent. Right. So for me to get into that space was just unreal mm-hmm. at that time. If you think about it, myself yeah. and Jerry Lawson, He had the opportunity to get into Stanford, which was a tech haven, Mm -hmm. right? If I had been able to get into MTI, I might have gone in a different direction because they were not that into microprocessor technology Mm -hmm. the way Stanford was. But it just so happens as to where the ball bounced. And it bounced in a direction for me that took me into the space of microcomputing. It didn't have to be that way, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, but I think it was just because of the curiosity that I had you know, the fact that I knew that I could do better than what was in front of me. Mm -hmm. Role models did help, but the best role model I could ever have was myself. Mm -hmm. And if you can't believe in yourself, if you can't believe in the things that you believe, that you dream about, that you feel is going to make you more successful, you don't need a role model. You need to to have a better conversation with yourself.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. And then in terms of diversity, just looking at tech, Right, so obviously the world has in many ways, you know, improved in a lot of areas, but you know, there's still is a lot of work to be done. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, are you sort of pleasantly surprised or negatively surprised, or how do you think about sort of what diversity in tech looks like today, versus maybe where you would have expected or would have liked it to be?
1: I am pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. And I say that because the level of focus I have seen within companies these days around diversity is encouraging. Mm -hmm. The number of folks that I've seen who are carving out their own path, you know, getting their own resources, you know, getting their own businesses up and running in this space is very encouraging. Mm -hmm. And that's one message that's very important, right? It's not about You know, you always trying to get a better job for yourself in tech. A lot of this has to do with starting your own companies Mm -hmm. in tech. And I see that happening as well. I see funding going out there for companies that are owned by African-Americans in technology that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. I think the Silicon Valley tech guys, they still need some slapping, <laughs> you know, because, you know, a lot of them do have their diversity offices, and I get it. Mm-hmm. But I've been in these large corporations. Yeah. I know what they talk about when they talk about diversity, and it's not always African American. Mm-hmm. To a lot of them, it's women, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily African American women. Mm-hmm. So we have to really understand what companies are saying when they talk
0: about diversity. Mm-hmm. I agree. It there's definitely still more work to be done, but it is, you know, encouraging. At least it's on the minds of, of some of these folks today, at least. So Absolutely. Yeah, hopefully we'll see continued change. But just wanted to, to switch gears and sort of as a concluding question, right? So you've been a tech pioneer, you've had a you know four plus decade career in tech, and you speak to a lot of folks who want to, you know, sort of be successful in tech as you were. And so I just wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for people who want to be pioneers in any industry, you know, or you can focus on tech and it doesn't necessarily have to be a pioneer in the area of diversity, right? You're just taking on a new challenge that other folks haven't before them.
1: So, you know, Chris, I, I would say that um, the key message, you know, that I would want to leave with anyone is to trust your gut and look around you at the different things that are out there and don't try to pigeonhole yourself into one particular space or Mm -hmm. thought process you know give yourself the opportunity to slide into another direction if you see is going to take you someplace and trust yourself because if you trust in yourself and your abilities and you have to have the ability right Mm -hmm. this is not a slam dunk it's not because you're going to sit back and wait and somebody's just going to call you up right Mm -hmm. you have to prove to folks that you have the knowledge that you need to have to do whatever it is you want to do so knowledge gaining is first and foremost you can't fool yourself you have to get the education that you need in a certain space to be able to move forward and by the way That one piece of education that you've been able to get for that one space is nothing more than a foundation that allows you to be able to absorb all of this other stuff that's going to come after you anyway. So you've got to have that knowledgeable foundation that will allow you to input stuff into your head, analyze it quickly, and extrapolate the things you don't need while you hold on to the things that you do. And those are the things that are going to take you where you need to go.
0: Awesome. I think that's a great point to end on. So I just want to say thanks for taking the time, Ed.
1: Chris, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion.